Patrick McGarren is a renowned antiquarian bookseller based in Ottawa, Canada, who over the years has been active with various associations. And today we're here to talk about the way things were, the way, the way things are, and the way things may be. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thanks very much. Why don't we start off with the comparison between the way things were when you got into the business and uh, how they've changed uh, over the years? In the early days, I don't think that there were more books. I mean, a lot of people think that it was easy because there were so many books, even if there weren't customers, and it was like plucking them off the tree. And that's not true. There's more books now, but the consciousness is so high about books and they, you know, they should be sold or preserved and not thrown out. Whereas in those days, things were just, you know, discarded. There were books around. Uh, I wouldn't say that, relatively speaking, they were easier to buy. There were, certainly wasn't more book, rare books around in those days, but there were certainly fewer customers. But essentially, you know, you bought the books, you looked at the books, you made an offer, and you basically went through them and you, you know, say there was 500 books and you... You know, three hundred. You priced them all pretty much out of your head, and and then the other thing we all did was read one another's catalogs. Mm -hmm. And there was a um, a thing called AB Antiquarian Bookman, where uh, dealers listed their wants in there. So you read that to kind of get a sense. Of, but this, you know, the triage was the same thing, you know. And and then there was always a few books that you didn't know, or oh, well, there would be quite a few that you didn't know, and and maybe you would go and look up and some of the price guides like Bookman Price or you check the auction records or whatever. And then basically you price those books and put them out on the shelves and people came in and eventually one day or ten years the books sold. You were always kind of looking for rare books that you could catalog. I mean, I realized right away that if you didn't catalog you were not going to be around too long. By putting together a, a, a listing of the books you think yeah, had some value. I've done, I've done 184 catalogs. You know, it takes about two months to do a catalog. It still does. You know, now we have all these wonderful tools to do it and great resources in terms of the Internet and all that sort of stuff and databases. So, But two months to, to do what? To, to, to produce a catalog. But basically you would come up with an idea, okay, this catalog is going to focus on this area and I'm going to pull together all my books in that That's area. Yeah, yeah, but sometimes your buying would influence that, you know, if you got a nice sort of collection of books on a certain subject. Uh, one good book is no good to you. You need, for cataloging purposes, you really have to have around 200 books. Otherwise, you're basically quoting is what you're doing. It's quite a different thing. Over the years, you uh, would have developed a mailing list of potential buyers. That's right. You would have come up with all sorts of different themes, I imagine. I, I started, I guess, with Catalog 39. I bought a collection, and I did a three-volume catalog on the Arctic, which caused quite a stir, actually. There was 1,200 books you know, I had a guy from Denmark who saw it on somebody's desk in New York and flew up to Ottawa. I mean, that, it had that kind of impact. But, you know, we were the supply, you know, the book dealer. And, like, if you saw the books, uh, you pretty much had to buy them. There wasn't somewhere else to go. There wasn't a comparison thing. And essentially, what a book was worth, that was driven by the trade. But now that's changed dramatically. We don't drive the prices so much. That's the marketplace. 
the marketplace does, the, the internet does, the auction houses does. The auction houses used to influence it, no doubt. In fact, often new highs in, in book prices came as a result of things doing much better at auction than anybody could anticipate. Incidentally, there was a recent auction of a, of a big collection, uh, Frank Streeter. Yeah, I met him. Oh, did you? Yeah. They pulled in over $16 million, and they're saying that this is an indication that the market is thriving these days. Yeah. Well, I have a friend, a, well, a collector in San Francisco, and he couldn't go. He would have been a potential buyer, I think, and he's got quite a good collection. He was quite distressed about the sale. This is another point of view, because he couldn't believe the prices the books were making. And this is somebody I've always thought of as a very willing buyer, very civilized, very willing, knowledgeable buyer. And he was shocked by the prices. However, he said, it was great fun to watch the multimillionaires beating up on the millionaires. <laughs> so... That's also a good point, though, because that's something that has changed so dramatically from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And in the 90s, the auction house, not even just Christie's anymore, auction houses that have sprung up all over the United States and, and, and England in particular, like that are a real presence in the market now. And they seem to have their own customers who go there and that specialize in books or that, that have got well, a specific Well, I mean, uh, Christie's and those guys specialize in everything, but yeah. they're really expert at rare books, and so are Sotheby's. And uh, Bloomsbury, I think, is just mainly books. Mm -hmm. And there's that guy, Winters or Windover, and, uh, and then, you know, Sotheby's, for instance, and Christie's, they have auction rooms all over the world. You know, you can be bidding, and you can go online and... And then there's, you know, A&E, and there's, there's so many. I know people who one time might have sold their collection, but in fact they're now sitting at home playing book dealer. I mean, I don't mean that disparagingly, but playing is obviously the operative word. Yeah, enjoying they're enjoying it. Exa so. Exactly, they're enjoying they're having fun, and they're, sure. they're able to move, move their library around as, as their tastes change. Well, and not only that, I mean, in some cases they're willing to spend the whole week on a sale that maybe is a hundred dollars or something you know which is <laughs> no good to be but i mean i was talking to one guy recently and he's you know very specialized in his knowledge well he's delighted to sell some of that stuff to, uh, on ebay because he meets some of the people that are who are buying it who are like him and they you know there's a community yeah that's exactly right yeah. mm -hmm. i guess this is true of everything though this is you always got to be careful in the book you know, we all tend to look out of our own navel here and think that this is us. And, you know, I have great friends like David and Steve. And, you know, we talk about these David. things. But David Mason and yes. Steve. And we talk Steve about Temple, and, yeah. and David Ewins and, and John Townsend. And we talk about these things all the time as if this is only us. When, in fact, you know, it's everybody. It's, it's affecting every industry. Sure it is. Yeah. Volvo yeah. and GM and... But specific to your industry, then, uh, prior to the advent of the of the internet, you as a book dealer had more control over the pricing because there wasn't the uh, capacity on behalf of the purchaser to to shop around and compare. I mean, I've always been a very hard worker in the trade, and I think most people would say that, and certainly Steve has been. But still, it was certainly a more 
leisurely, a more gentlemanly kind of, uh, you know, go home at five o'clock, and whereas now we all run home with our memory disc. Partly because you're obsessed, too. Yeah, that's true, yeah. That, yeah most booksellers are obsessed, and yeah. most collectors are obsessed, too. And, yeah. uh, we can forgive all the sins of our colleagues and our collector friends if they buy. We have absolute fury for them behind the curtains if they don't. Yes. <laughs> so that's what's changed, you know. Like David Mason and I used to laugh about Grant Wilmer, who is one of the great guys in the trade, and we never saw him work. You know, you'd go to Montreal and you'd walk in there, and that was it. You'd go to lunch, he'd get a bottle of scotch, and or you'd go to your dinner, and it'd go on for hours, and there'd be stories and talk about the trade and about books and. We never saw Grant work. Well, it turns out he did work. <laughs> he used to go in at like 7 o'clock in the morning. So if you turned up there at noon, you know, his day, he already had a, a good half, a solid half day of work. Which is unusual, yeah, because I mean, you, you have this uh, stereotype of a bookseller who doesn't really come in until about 11 o'clock. And uh, are you talking about now or previously? Because This is the old days. Because he had to be open. This is the antique bookshop in Montreal on Victoria Street in the 60s and 70s. You know, Bernard and Bernard Atman and Jerry Sherlock and Grant Wilmer, they were really very generous with people in the trade. And Grant would say to you, you know, something comes up, don't hesitate to call me. And, and you could call him and you knew that he wasn't telling you something so that he could get the book or something. You know, he was very beyond all that. They were very genuine in their advice, and they, they really meant it. I remember... But you had to rely on them for, for to get a, 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 an idea of what this thing was worth, right? You don't want to... Exactly, and I You had to get that, that information from somewhere. A fellow brought me in on Mackenzie's Voyages when I was on Medcalf Street, and it had one map. Sorry, a Mackenzie's... Mackenzie's Voyages. Voyages, yeah. okay. It had one map in facsimile, and it was really, to me, it looked like, you know, and I didn't know quite what to do. I was a bit bothered by the fact, and so I phoned Grant. I guess I'd been in business maybe a year, year and a half. So he gave me the lesson on right there and then. He said, you know, you, you do not ever buy one of these books with a facsimile in it. And then he said, you know, actually, Mackenzie is kind of a common rare book. And he said, you know, it's not so common with the half title, and you should make sure that the port... He, like, he gave me gave the, the whole things uh, that I would need to know. And uh, yeah. So and generous in that respect. Very generous. And, and Bernard Antman was good like that. And I remember meeting Jerry Sherlock uh, in Toronto in another store, and he said, you know, I'm on my way to, to, to a book call now, but he said, if you have time tomorrow, why don't you come over to the house? You know? I mean, I just was talking to the guy for like three minutes you know yeah he was enthused that there was a young guy in the trade in ottawa i went to his house he took like the whole morning i was embarrassed you know mm -hmm. and he was in a cupboard there fishing around <laughs> and his old catalogs were flying out and he you know stacked up a whole pile of catalogs seemed embarrassed that he couldn't find more you know and he was telling me no you read these and you'll see you know what what we do here and that's so that's the way the trade was in those days. I mean, but that's sir. gone then to the, to the extent you don't have to rely on these generous people anymore. No, that's right. That's, that really has... And it's not quite as gentlemanly as it used to be then. And it's not, no. And it's much more... Now it's, you know, we all have to work and uh, we like anybody else in the world. <laughs> in other words, the product that you have isn't 
uh, in a sense, in in the past, you could put whatever price you wanted on on it and either get it or not get it, whereas now you can't do that. Well, not quite. (laughs) In the old days, you always spent hours going through other people's catalogs or looking in bookman price. It was very time-intensive, and I don't think I ever watched a baseball game in my life without piles of booksellers' catalogs, you know, waiting for something. Multitasking. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you had to kind of be aware, but there was a lot more dealer trade as well. That was the other thing. If you had books that were good in a certain subject, but you didn't have any, you know, you tended to be a little softer on that. And then at book fairs, which were another great thing in there, they, like the book fairs of the 80s were just really, there was a real vibrancy for it. I mean, you didn't realize that at the time. You just thought it was normal. But vibrancy in what? In this well, the customers were just dying to get in, and they couldn't wait to get their hands on the books. And now this, that's not quite the case? No. No, it's not. Yeah. It's not anywhere near like that. And is that largely because, again, the, the, it's, the books themselves are much more accessible? So that the I think so. So I, there's, there's know, more, more outlets now you to know, get I'll the tell books. You, I'll tell you a story. Where we get hassled the most is when somebody phones up. We have a catalog out. Guy phones up. I see number 50 is in there. You have that book, yeah. You say, well, actually, it's sold. Right away, they say, it's sold, and they're mad as hell, right? But a few seconds ago, they're they're wondering why it's so much. Like, they're afraid to say, you know what they're thinking, is they wonder if you'd do any better on this for me, and they're kind of afraid to say that. But as soon as you say it's sold, and, and some guys, okay, really sure, I thought I was a good customer. Well, who got the book? And you say to them, well, you know, it takes more than one person to make a market here. We do mail out 500 of these things. We don't mail out one. Well, I know, but I always thought, you know, I was a good customer. Well, I think you are, but, you know, it's like that. Now, you see, for a lot of this stuff on the net, there's a lot more copies out there. I mean, I mean, who knew, like with modern first editions, who knew how many copies of some of these? I mean, so, yeah, that's an interesting question. So, first of all, we... St- it's still difficult to get a handle on the number of copies that a particular book may have been printed in yeah. in the first in the first instance. Yeah, you know, it determines scarcity, yeah. which theoretically would determine the, the price of the book. But you see, before the internet, I'd be dying to buy books by Auden. Not even first, like anything like that. Yeah. Well, now I'm dying to buy the highlighter, the really expensive one. I don't want the rest of them. They're, that, they're going to be more difficult well, for you yeah. to sell. Who knew? At you a know, like some of these, like uh, Waugh's Black Mischief, you know, was always a great rare book, right? And I think I've had one copy or one of the good ones anyway, or Scoop. And I had Scoop in a jacket. And Dave McIntosh, who was a journalist, he, he was so excited to get the Scoop in a jacket. And I remember him boasting to his friends, you know, about getting that book. But now, I don't know if there are copies on the net, or I haven't looked recently, but, I mean, now you can go and see what the mass inventory of this mm. stuff is. I mean, it's sort of, yeah. but, I mean it gives us uh, collectors a, a leg up uh, to yeah. some extent, yeah. and there's nothing wrong with that at all, really. No. I mean, it, it, in terms No, except that, it, you know, when you say, you know, how the economics of the trade are, like, I mean, it's always been a business that's hard to make a living of. And I mean, I think that's really all people really would hope to do is to make a living or to make a good living out of it. And basically, that's because you buy 
and you pay this big amount, you know, several hundred or several thousand bucks, and then the money comes back. It's like publishing. You know, it's true of all aspects of the business. It's called capital. And I know a bit about business. It's called capital. Well, you've been in business for a number of years. Well, I grew up in a family business. Which one was that? Uh, my father had a bus company, actually. My two brothers took it over. They they just sold it, actually. Uh, yeah, my father had about 400. Well, they ended when they sold it, I think there was about 400 buses. But he started in the 30s in up the Ottawa Valley here uh, in the late 30s, was it? I think so. With one bus. <laughs> oh, great. Him and a guy, him and another friend who was a welder, they made, they bought a chassis and, made, and built a bus. Well, there was a new Calumet Mines was starting and he'd had an industrial accident and uh, he was a mill worker and he couldn't do that anymore. He was the guy they sent around when they were setting up the mills that, you know, put all the equipment in. He was one of those kind of guys. He had this accident lost all the tendons in one arm so he put the bid in and him and this other guy bought a he bought went to detroit i think or windsor bought a ford frame a a five-ton truck frame drove it home sitting on an old coke case with no windshield on or anything and him and this guy named huck malenberg made the bus the seats the whole they sort of built they built the business from the ground up <laughs> yeah, yeah. you've got business acumen in some your blood sense of you know what you need to do and i had i had a very strong sense of what i was getting into you know my, my father who was not kind of literary in that sense i remember he came into my store on medcalf and he walked around and chewed tobacco i think he was quite disappointed that i was rejecting because his other two sons were in the business, and and he came over to me and he says, "This be more the sort of kind of business a fellow would get into if he was retiring." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I couldn't get over that, but I I said to him, "Well, I guess you're absolutely right." So in a way, maybe I've been retired for the last thirty-five years. <laughs> right. Yeah. You've got the business acumen. You've 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 known how to make a bit uh, a living, but it hasn't made you uh, extremely wealthy. No. Looking then, in terms of the the health of the industry, it's not it's not unhealthy right now. I mean, you're doing well, right? Yeah, we're actually we're doing as well as I guess you know as well as could be expected. Really, I mean, we're the only thing that has changed. Yeah, wait, wait a minute. That's, that's, that's sort of a, that's a negative way of putting it. You're doing really well. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Like I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. I'd say we're reasonably strong, but you never get to feel that you're not threatened, that you, you couldn't be gone in six months. You just never are allowed to. And that's not psychological or anything. That's, that's reality. That's, that anxiety you find in the trade or dealers or whatever, that, it, it, you know, you're a leaf on the tree. You're, you're shaking all the time. You're never allowed to... <laughs> It's unfortunate, I don't, but I don't think there's really a place where you could, you know, until maybe you get out of it. And, and but that's okay, you know. I mean, I accept that, and and uh, and Liam does too. We, you know, your son. He, yeah, he's yeah. not naive about that. He go, he followed his father. You didn't. You know, having growing up in the family business, I didn't push or direct or even suspect that he was going to end up here. In fact, if it had been any of the three, I thought it might have been one of the girls. Mm-hmm. Both of them worked here and seemed interested at one point, and then 
moved on. Moved away, and he was away. Although, but he used to tell me when he was a teenager that he liked the business, but he was never going to do it. He was going to do something that you could make money at. I think he was 14 when he told me that for the first time. And even as a little wee guy, you know, he used to, he would come down here and he'd be as quiet as a mess and he'd go around and line up all the books <laughs> on the shelves. Yes. Yeah, talk about in your blood, huh? <laughs> We're talking, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, and even 90s. We're talking about antiquarian bookstores, which are in a store. Now we're not ta- the store is not really the store, the store is, is, the is as much a home or a warehouse right. or whatever. Yeah. And people say to me, you know, all the time, well, why do you keep the store? You know, like my taxes here are twelve thousand bucks a year. You know, I mean, if I didn't own the building, I don't think I could afford the rent. But on the other hand, if you look at that on a more sort of uh, take the larger view, I have that beacon on the street. I meet people all the time who've never be, even been in here. And as soon as you say who you are, they know where that store is, you see. So there's a certain something or of some value. Well, it's, it's a huge value to us, to, to me as a, and, and to others who are lovers of books. It's the, one, of the, one of the tragedies is that, that stores like yours are closing up. Yeah, uh, and, and, right. and And so I'd, I'd like to get a handle on the degree to which that's taking place, uh, because I, I'm fearful that uh, in the coming well, years... Well, the, the crux of that is that it would probably be better for our purposes to talk about the retail trade, and the retail trade is in big trouble and has been for five or ten years. And it comes down to one thing, is that the costs are always, the boats are flying, and the sales there are people are just there's all kinds of reasons for that you know the bigger box stores the massive amount of you know institutional library sales that takes away from the secondhand trade there is uh, people going on and doing their own thing you know buying and selling on eBay because I say the main one would be the fact that the rents are going up yeah the rents are you know like you're looking at what four thousand dollars a month to rent a store and I believe they used to say that the rent should be about ten percent of the gross well that tells me what's the, what secondhand store or bookstore could possibly be grossing four or five hundred thousand a year I don't think most of them could I don't think most of them are you know if you go into some of those towns where there's most people are not doing anywhere near that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we were talking about the, the catalog there, the point I was going to make is that for a lot of times, you know, when Book Bazaar was here, and at one time there was, what, 10 or 12 stores in the Glebe area here, you know, you as a customer were happy to come here because you felt that you could go around and you could get what you wanted. Like the but, car dealers going to the same corners. Yeah, yeah. but the thing is... Um, so it was complimentary. And the thing is, though, that was where you had to go, but now you don't have to do that. You can go click, 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 and you've got an infinite variety of things right there. What we sell is still expertise, both you know, in terms of our sense of why something's worth that. And we're very much catalog. We do a lot of Internet business. We're shipping parcels here every day. What percentage of your business is it now? Well... We used to say it was like a third catalog and book fairs. At one point, the Internet came up to about a third. Then it went down. Now it's coming back up again. 
about a third would be the store. I kind of think that that's, that's coming that's down a bit. So we're about where we were, but it's being done from a different... So about a third, been, a third, a third, a third. Yeah, in the 90s it would have been 50-50 or even 60-40 in terms of the store. I remember, you know... The store being, it would have been 50, 60% for the store? Yeah, I would And now it's so. down to about 30% yeah, in, in about 10 years. So. I would say so, yeah. You know, one of the real, amazingly enough, I don't know what it was, is that, that the or why it should be that, but GST really hurt the retail trade. It just... Well, you, you still have to pay GST if you live in Canada, but not around the world. I don't know why it was affected book buyers so much, but it really did. It was in terms of the store trade. There was a long period of time to get to draw back to where you were. There was about a year and a half there. I think there was a bit of a recession at the time as well. Yeah. Well, you know what I found too, because uh, I did a bit of dabbling selling books on the internet, is that uh, to start with, it was quite. Uh, I made some decent money doing it, but then. But then I think as more and more books became available uh, on online, the, the prices got just uh, smashed down, and it didn't become uh, that profitable to do well, it. Well, you see, the other thing I see about the Internet is, is that, in one sense, it's made just about anything potentially saleable. You know, in the old days, we were always doing triage. You know, I mean, it was we didn't buy 10 or 20% of what we saw tried not to carry the whole thing is we were like mash you know like that program we were constantly doing triage on the books sorting them out this is this this is well now in a way it's worse actually because those books are now being warehoused on the internet you don't even need to think about it anymore right? except for the rare books that's what we're constantly after is the rare books and we are very competitive there I mean we I, I feel very strongly about what we can, dare I say, some of these people I'm talking about, it'd be pretty hard to beat us, really. I mean, now, what happens if that part of the trade collapses? There's some worry about that. You know, the rare? About the rare book business going down. Because, like, some of the big stores there have closed. Robert Frew in, in London closed. I don't know what happened there, but, but I know his, that huge store, really wonderful store near the British Museum, and he's, you know, a just big, big presence in the trade. When did, this, when did that happen? Just a few months ago. I don't know any of the details. Heritage in, in Los Angeles. You know, and that's shocking to me that they, they've sold the building. And one of them is retiring, and the other one is uh, going to just stay on and do rare books from an office kind of thing. It sounds to me like he's going to just single out his sort of best customers or that sort of thing. And, work at it from that point of view but that's I don't know if you've been there but that was really significant and it's one of the kind of highlight stores in, in America you know really it's up there with it's the kind of modern day good speeds I suppose in a sense the industry isn't necessarily suffering it seems that they're just going away from bricks and mortar to uh, I had a, a friend who's a very experienced bookseller who sort of needs a job in the trade again after having gone out of it for a while and he's been all over in England and you know even his name you would think he would get a job in a minute and he hasn't. At one point was he quite willing to take a job that most of us in the trade would have at our stage would have thought was menial and when he went to do it and they saw his thing they said you're overqualified. <laughs> so but my reaction was well forget the book trade 
go around to the auction houses, you know. I mean, with your expertise, you would... Do it yourself, open up your own place. Or, well, I, he wouldn't be good at that, but he would be a great cataloger for he's a very, very knowledgeable bookseller. Mm. I mean, you couldn't... Who is this? Uh, his name, he worked for me in the, um, in the 80s and 90s. His name is Michael Newman. Yeah, he was kind of very well known in his days around here. He was a great guy. Mm. But anyway, my you know, it just popped into my head. I said, he said, gee, you're right. The auction houses seem to be flourishing. Uh, if you read that stuff in A and from A and E in their thing there last month about auction houses, you know, maybe that's what's happening to the trade. Or uh, it's it's becoming more of an auction. Well, they trip. made the point, you know, that like their customers are people who uh, know what they want, are not afraid to come and get it, but then they only want that. They're not in. They're not browsing. They're not kind of acquisitive, or they're not, they don't have that kind of. In other words, they like to go for the highlights, but they don't want to go for yeah, the full collection. It. Yeah, that's yeah. right. You know, they want the perfect copy and the perfect jacket. And they're willing to pay for it, and then anything else is, you know. So, you know, my sense of what I was reading there is that these are people that have a shelf or two of books, not a collection. So it's kind of like high spot collecting. Yeah. More of an investment than rather than a passion. Yeah. And then there's other people, uh, you know, you used to see in the trade. And you still see some of these people sometimes. A lot of them are selling on eBay and stuff like that. So it's gone sideways. There's a lot of factors in the change. There's all the amount of... Re I could go on about this. Like, think about the number of reprints there are. I can't get over that. How... You know, a lot of times this book here, say, uh, people wanted it because it came up once every ten years. Which book is that? I'm uh, just using that oh, as okay. an, uh, you know... A prop. <laughs> a prop. Montreal Past and Present. <laughs> That book, I, you know, is a good book that you could sell once every 10 years for $75. But what you don't want is five copies of that book in 10 years. Well, now there's 20 copies of it. And not only that, some monkeys reprinted it. Go figure. It's vastly oversupplied. Uh, Mackenzie's Voyages, you can reprint that till their head falls off and it doesn't hurt it at all because it is a really important book. It's very distinctive, it's, and the first printing is always going to be have cachet and value. And it's, n it's not going to be, the price of it isn't going to go down based on the, the no. supply. Cause, well, it's only a certain... But this book is dramatically affected by that supply. That doesn't... It, it, so really what you're saying is it's the importance of the title. The, yeah. It's not the supply necessarily, although... Well, there's certain things eh, that, like... Like a first edition of Catcher in the Rye and a Fine Jacket, you know, is always going to be, I don't care how many bazillion reprints there are. You know, literature is a good example of what I'm saying. But the same thing is true of some voyages and travels. I mean, some of those books with the plates and the binding and the maps, they're spectacular in and of themselves. And no reprint can ever go there or ever get even, you know within a herd's distance of it. But this is just an 1890s book with your buying and would have, you know, 10 years ago, like I was saying about Dave McIntosh, you know, you, that you would buy because you, your family's in here or you wanted to read it or you had a special interest. You would have been happy to. But now, you probably don't even get to the second-hand store. You go on the Internet and Google it, and there's probably... So that's enough. The other thing is the reprints, that's... 
significant because in the 80s and 90s, I used to do a lot of trade because people would go to Prospero or Coles or places like that, and they'd ask for R.M. Patterson's Dangerous Room. Out of print, go and see those guys down there on Bank Street. Down they'd come. Do you know what? I mean, I, I wouldn't go a month without three requests for that book all summer long. Every, you know, I don't think anybody's asked me for that book in maybe once a year. It's been reprinted. Not only that, you can get it everywhere. You can get it at Mountain Equipment, Point of Sale Retailing. Eh? You go to the hospital, you're coming out, they're selling you secondhand books or new books in the hospital. Yeah. You, well, know, you go to the library. Supermarket. Eating, can, yeah. it's, it, so that affects us. I mean... The, the, the sale of uh, used books in all sorts of different locations. Yeah. 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 On an ongoing basis, yeah. not just sales. Yeah. Uh, as far as the ILAB or ELAB is, is concerned, I mean, my understanding of them is that they're there primarily to sort of to, uh, to, to prove to purchasers that the members uh, uphold a certain standard, a code of standard. Yeah. Uh, and that, as much as anything, is like a stamp of approval. Yeah. Uh, beyond that, I don't really see what... That's what, right. What and in there fact, is. they have a campaign on, which is a good one, to promote the eLab website. If you're interested in a book that you can count on or an antiquarian book or that stuff, the eLab's website is, to me, the best website in that sense. What, what's, what does it do? Well, it's you have to be uh, a member. Like the books that are listed there, when I dropped down the list of the books on ABE, I was very much opposed to this thing of price, lowest price first. Mm. To me, this is like you know, going to the graveyard where people haven't bothered to fill in the sand. I mean, all the worst books in the world are being presented to you first because they're cheap. Now, if that's what you want, that's fine, you know, and there are options that you can signal to go around it, but the fact is they're poorly described. I mean, sometimes they're described as being awful and you get the book and it's fine, you know. Yeah. I mean, the, but on the other works hand... works both ways. Yeah. Oh, it sure does, yeah. yeah. But I mean, the uh, thing is, though, obviously we're <laughs> talking about collectors here. If yeah. you just want content, then yeah, you go get the cheapest one available yeah, and that's... Yeah. that's but if you're, if you're a collector, I would say the eLab site should certainly be one of your links. And basically then, they th that lists the books of all of the members, correct? That's right, right around So you can, you can basically count on the fact that this, the pricing is, is going to be a re reasonable pricing, but more importantly that well, the Well, no, people still have the right to put a wild price on them yeah, if they but want. But they I want, mean, but the books are going to be as yeah, described, yeah. and that's the key. And, and there are people who take pride in how they describe the book. I mean, when I, I've had 40, nearly 40 years of typing these descriptions. I've cataloged, I don't know, 50 or 60,000 books, more than, you know, that's in Sabin or some of those things. I don't say that I feel that I'm as good as I'd like to be at it, but I think what I try and do, and Clive, we're trying to, as best we can, give you an accurate picture of both what's inside the book and, and what's outside the book. Not over-describe it, but at the same time, not under-describe it. I mean, some people will put every little scratch and nick, and uh, I mean, in some cases with literature, that's quite valid, but for most books, to me, it's, uh, you know, you don't need to do that. I think you need to say, 
and teach people. Uh, your catalogs are, are like people get a real sense of what you mean and how it works. And once they've purchased a book from you, yeah. they'll know r yeah. roughly what your description. Yeah. But uh, but as over and above that, what purpose does this the eLab serve? Well, it's essentially to pr promote professionalism in the trade so that you as a customer know that you're buying from somebody who's responsible, who you have a recourse to if they prove not to be responsible. You know, on some of these other places, like, say, eBay, you realize you don't have, I mean, you don't even know. I know I know of books right now which are stolen are on eBay, and they're going to sell to somebody. You know, Inspire beware. Ah, yeah. yeah. Not that it's uh, absolutely perfect or that all the members are perfect, but, I mean, you would have a recourse. Yeah. Uh, most of us, uh, uh, I think it's a covenant in the trade that if somebody's unhappy about a book, you know, really unhappy about it, there are some extenuating circumstances, but, you know, most people will, are glad to take the book back. I yeah. would, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. kind of. Patrick McGarren of McGarren Books in Ottawa. What are some of the say some of the problems that they're trying to solve on your behalf? Stores are in decline, you know, and I mean nobody kind of wants that. And so Elab, I think, tr is trying very hard to sort out ways or things that they can do. And I've seen some very intelligent discussions about it, both in the Elab newsletter and in the I get the uh, American uh, Associate, the ABAA newsletter. But you know, really, you just have to adapt and change. And you know, if this is the way it's going, we have this discussion here all the time. I mean, I can set the table, I can put the stuff on it, but if you don't want to come, then I better find a different way of doing it, or I'm not going to have a table. You know, yeah. and that's. That's just the world we're in, you know. I remember years ago there was a guy named Craig Fraser from Waterdown, Ontario, and Craig was quite a force in a, in a way in the book trade in the 80s, 70s, 80s. He was retired, retired Simpson Sears, exec, uh, Sears executive, and he brought some of that acumen to the book trade, but he was a collector beforehand. He was one of the founders of Canada Book Auctions, and he talked me and a few other people into it. Anyway, he was a, a real good guy. I mean, he was that kind of Scottish guy who, you know, he, he would make you a good, hard deal. Three days later, he'd phone up to see if you were doing okay, you know, if that was mm. going to, you know. He was. So he had the idea, and I was on a committee with him where, what could we do to promote young, help younger booksellers in the trade? And because uh, we felt that, like, people of his age level were passing through and there didn't seem to be the next generation yeah and so we had meetings and discussions good discussions and you know a lot of intelligent kind of input into it I thought and I remember we were at a meeting in Toronto and somebody who was kind of a dissenter said you know uh, it was so good that we had people who thought we were wasting our time who were there to say that you know so it was it wasn't just all primrose or something and this guy made the argument. He said, you know, what can we do for these guys? You don't need to throw a rock into the water to find out whether it's going to sink or not. And then you can't, what can you do for the rock after it's gone down, you know? I mean, essentially, a new bookseller, if he wants, I can do a lot 
if he wants to ask me questions. But I can't do it for him. He's got to do it, right? He's got to. It's like learning to swim, you know. You yeah. Have he's he's got to come up with the right mix that helps he's him make money and bring people into his store. Well, this is where we are now. I mean, is this different now? I mean, it's just. You you basically you're trying to juggle for how do I maximize. The, 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 the traffic that comes to the store, how do I maximize I think profit e there? I think eLab has done, you know, had a great effort and a lot of thought and, and real anxiety. I mean, a lot of booksellers are really kind of very worried about this. But what can they do, really? Yeah. I mean, It seems to me the only thing they can do is what they're doing, which is exactly. trying to differentiate members from everyone else yeah. and, make, and get people comfortable with the fact that, that these are legitimate booksellers. Yeah that uh, you can trust them and that they're providing a beautiful, wonderful service to collectors by actually having bricks and mortar uh, locations that you can visit. Yeah, and I think in some ways maybe they're not kind of hearing that. I think individually, like, you know, people who are, once you go away from the store and... Uh, Who's they aren't hearing? I mean, the dealers are, are, or people in the trade aren't, don't have that sense that maybe that they're appreciated or whatever because they're, there's less contact, you know, like a, some people that only see customers when they go to book fairs or something. And uh, I remember there was a lady and uh, I used to see at the Boston Book Fair. I did the Boston Book Fair every year for something like 19, I think I was the longest continuous exhibitor there. I think it was early 70s until 2000. Why'd you stop? I was in Ireland. I got sick, and I was sort of recovering from that, and I just had too much on, and I didn't go that year. And somehow, you know, I'll go again, you know, but it just, I just got away from it. And I, and I was doing other book fairs, at, you know, it was in New York. It was just kind of timing. It's two weeks after Ottawa, too, so yeah. it's uh, a lot if you have two book fairs and a catalog. And Anyway, this lady, I was, she was a good bookseller and a, and a great person. She was one of the first to give up on the store and move into a warehouse and go exclusively on the net. And at first, you know, she was thrilled with all of this. And then I kind of lost contact with her. And about four years after that, I was looking for a book and there it was. So I emailed her and I said, do you remember me from the Boston Book Fair? And the response I got, <laughs> And the email was mm. like this, you know. Like She's starving how much, for... Oh, yeah, how much I missed that. Starving for contact. down here, you know. It, it really is interesting, isn't it? It's, yeah. a, it's a lifestyle change. It is. You, t yeah. you, you close your door, and then you, you automatically close your door to all sorts of interesting people that you would meet otherwise. Absolutely, yeah. Like, I, I sometimes, you know, as you say, we're all obsessive. And, you know, I know a guy when he's cataloging. He's a great guy. He's a terrific bookseller. And he's really obsessive. <laughs> When he's cataloging, he literally go, and he's my age, and he literally go days without sleep. <laughs> Just to finish it. I said to him once, does that explain your high prices? Right. He didn't laugh. In the old days, some I'd go home sometimes, and I, I'd have the whole day with you, like what we're doing. David Mason came up with the phrase that we describe ourselves as bookseller, psychiatrist, priest. Not many people would say that anymore. That's changed, you know. Now we have to work. I feel guilty about it all the time, you know. That that you're not able to spend more face I, time with no, customers. No, I, you know, I, you just, you just can't do it. Yeah, you yeah. gotta. That's a real change in the industry. It's eh? really regrettable. I mean, yeah. we have to be 
just as business now. You as, know, oppo- as opposed to, as you say, all yeah, the other ones. So if we have this conversation, you know, I have to go out or I'll see you on Saturday or, you know. So this is costing you money right here in our conversation. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, uh, we're not that badly off. Okay. But, but, you know, it's certainly a consciousness shift. And it was one I was aware of maybe a little bit more than other people. And that's a big change in the, in the trade and a regrettable one. Yeah. And then, of course, people are, don't win quite as much as they do. Yeah. So what about the future then? How do you see the industry, you know, that 30-30-30 that split? Uh, do you see yeah, that? I hope not. I mean, I'm quite happy with that split. Yeah. And, uh, and I think Liam is too. I mean, the last thing we would want to do is give up on the paperback i love you know i've always liked being the kind of bookseller that has william Trevor novels or you know that sort of thing and uh, abe in the early uh, ab <laughs> there's a Freudian slip and agrarian bookman used to have a fr- uh, slogan and you know now there's where our heads are filled with these slogans while you're waiting for your computer to theirs was the right book for the right person at the right time well, that's what we are. I mean, that's what we were. And the great joy in the early days was when you came to me and you said, do you have Patterson's Dangerous River? I would reach out and give you something that you had no right to expect to have because it was out of print and it was, well, now that's changed. Now you can go on the Internet and look at 100 copies and decide which secondhand. You see, the secondhand book has now become a commodity. That's mm-hmm. the thing. There are people, the people who are in control have MBAs and are, they're the president of ABE Books. Yeah, he does own MBA. I'm sure he does. I didn't know for, that, but I'm sure I, I could tell From Germany. You that, yeah, I could tell you that he does. You can tell by when you write there uh, to complain about something. I mean, they're nice. It's a good company. It's it is a good company. and, and uh, But you can tell by the response that, like, man... He has no clue what the question was. This is the response by somebody who doesn't know, you know, it's not. But that, that I suppose we've really arrived here in a sense at what the real difference. And that, that to me is the big significant change, is that the book business was idiosyncratic, obsessive, and it was very interpersonal. And I don't think it's those things now. I think that's change but it may not be it's, for it's more, more well now it's you know much less uh, you know a lot more you're getting your books coming in a brown wrapped up in the, through the post and uh, less of a relationship with less the of a relationship and uh, in fact you know as I say feel somewhat guilty but mostly we're like self-service place now you know I mean we get up and say we're well, going look here going look there but you know Less of a conversation. Less of a conversation. We have a better rapport with our customers who are buying bigger books every once in a while because they're pressing on you what their needs are and what their interests are. So optimistic about the future? or Uh, I've never been optimistic about it. I'm kind of fatalistic about it. I don't think you ever get, as I said earlier, you know, you don't ever get to feel... I really wish, you know, you could be more relaxed in the book trade, but the, the reality is you can't. You have to be hard on what you're buying and hard and working hard on what you're selling. And I don't think that's going to change. 
But the other side of the coin, and I've said, Liam and I have had many of these discussions about what we should or shouldn't be doing, and often they come to, not because you can't really decide, you know, but you know what, I say, what the hell is different? I mean, this is not that different than 30 years ago, you know, you're having a terrible march, you know. Believe me, there's been lots of terrible marches in this story. You know, booksellers look at, you know, this is a good day, this is a good day. That You hear a lot of that talk in the trade, you know. So I said, to, say to them, younger guys, take your year, take out your bad days, add it up, subtract that from the gross. If you didn't have those bad days, you'd be out on the street. If you, if you, well, you, say, you, you say a good day is $100, an average day is $50, and a bad day is $20. So close up on the bad days. Then take that amount out of your gross at the end of the year. Where would you be? You'd be out of business. Is yeah. you're because you're not... So putting, bad days better than nothing. Well, the, the $20 is maybe what you're taking home. Right? That's probably the end of the thing that you're being paid on. Right? So uh, my message to them is do your work. Get it done. Put the books up. Make them available. The other thing that... I have a sense of is that it is always and always probably will be it's a small very small end of the I mean everybody reads books but not many people read books the way you know we don't even see ourselves as being different than most people but we are you know most people might have a hundred or two hundred books in their house and they're worried to death about the dust on them or something. But how many people have, you know, a thousand books in their house and are only worried about where they're going to put <laughs> the recent ones they bought? You know? I don't want to detain you. The other thing I notice about book buyers or book collectors is the people that ask me the fewest questions are invariably the people who buy the most books. They're not car tire kickers. They come in. I had a guy who, for years, I've watched that guy become an old man. He came in just like every Saturday. I don't think we said three words to ourselves on any either. You know, he would say thank you. I would say, you know, can I get you a bag? And he'd say, yes, thank you. Or he'd nod his head. I've been on for you. But he, every Saturday he went out with one, two, three books. That's who book buyers are. You know, book, uh, for me, I love that, going to a bookstore. There is an etiquette in the trades that says you should introduce yourself. And I understand that, and I sometimes do. But I much, I like going in there. And not being bugged. Not yeah. just, I like going along the shelf there, and, you know, and that's what it's all <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Finding the treasure yourself. Oh uh, yeah, and it's just it's sort of um, you're learning something there. You're, it's interesting, you know, if you take a shelf of books here like that, and you run your eye along there, you're going to see some things. And if you take those books out and put them here, and look at them one at a time like this, I guarantee you'll see a couple of books that you didn't see when you were running. Around. You you take them off the shelf and stack them up and open put them on the table and then just look at them one at a time off the top of the pile. It's much slower, right? Right. Surprising. 
how many times there are going to be a couple of books in there that you didn't you see saw. when you went across. Isn't there. that interesting? Have you read uh, Jack Matthews' book, uh, Book Collecting for Pleasure and Profit? I don't know that I have. That's a good book. Is it? Yeah. He, Thank you. He talks about things like that. He says that book collecting is the last truly selfish pursuit. And then he talks about why that's a good thing. Because it's you and this, which is ideas, and you're not having to share it or explain it. It's your intellectual property and that one connecting. You don't have to justify you I mean, you might flippantly, you know, to get it by your wife or something, or, you know, although I loathe that excuse when I hear it. I can, it really bothers me when, when some guy says, I'd like to buy this. But my wife would kill me, and I have, I've even said to guys, well, if she doesn't, she should. Just That's for right. making that excuse. That's right. Don't tease me like that. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, you'd enjoy that book. Well, and, and our listeners would, too. Again, yeah. what's the title of that book? It, uh, it's by Jack Matthews, and it's called Book Collecting for Pleasure and Profit. He's the first one to really examine, I think, this idea that you can actually be collecting books validly and hoping that they go up in value. Whereas before him, like Carter and all that stuff, that was just a terrible thing. But his only point was, well, that's silly. I mean, you buy a Mackenzie and it goes up in value, what are you going to do, you know, throw it out or something? I mean, that's, you know, maybe it shouldn't be why you bought it. No, but it's definitely but plays, it, it, play, it plays a part, for sure it does. It. Yeah, like like it does. it's it's natural human instinct to want to make a profit out of Irish things. maps that I started 30 years ago for the salt well I was I'm Irish and I go there once in a while my father was and I've, I've had a kind of a I guess I developed a consuming interest in the subject so I started collecting these maps solely because nobody else wanted them and I thought they were too good just to so I anytime I saw them I bought them it's they're fabulous. You're happy, value. You're happy yeah. you did that. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I never. And you can you them. have the resources to sell them if you wish to. Yeah, I, I, but I never. My instinct was never to to buy them because I thought they were going to be a good no. long term investment. That happened, but I mean. But you love everybody. Said I do. I have a very hard time selling them. At the same time, I don't ignore the fact that they're now valuable. I mean, why wouldn't you relish them? I mean, it'd be silly to pretend otherwise. Mm. It's that old smoke jacket. Well, thank you for uh, sharing your thoughts on the industry. Oh, well, I hope it was somewhat coherent. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we look forward to to talking again, uh, perhaps in another ten years or so. Yeah. (laughs) See where where the Internet has taken us. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, I I plan to still be here in some capacity or other. Yeah, it keeps you going, I'm sure. Yeah, it does. Yeah.